There's a story in the book of Acts, in the early days of the church, Acts chapter 3, when the scripture tells us that Peter and John are on the way to the temple to pray. And it says it's about the ninth hour of the day. And when they get to the temple, they encounter at the temple this young man who has been brought to the temple every day, and he's unable to walk. He's lame, the scripture tells us, from the time of his birth. And when he sees Peter and John, because as, as has been his practice every day, he's asking for alms, the scripture says. So he's begging, he's asking for gifts of money, because he's obviously thinking that that money is going to make his experience better than it is. And Peter and John look at him. And Peter says... I don't have silver or gold, so I can't give you what you think you want, but what I do have, I give you. And the rest of the story in Acts 3 tells us that Peter lifts the guy by the hand and he stands up and he walks and he begins to walk for the first time in his life and he begins to leap and praise God and people are amazed that this thing has happened. And they're really excited about this, as we would be if we'd just seen this happen. And Peter does a, a, a great job of making sure that people don't think that it's him that did this. It's not me that did this, Peter says. It's faith in Jesus that did this. But the text I want you to focus on is when Peter says to the man, and he looks at him and says, what I have, I give you. Peter's sure he has something to give in that moment. He knows what he doesn't have. He doesn't have silver or gold, but he has something to give. And when you think about that, think about the confidence with which Peter speaks, that he has something tangible, something substantive that this man needs to give to him. And it leads us to the question, where did Peter get it? Where did Peter get it? How was Peter so confident in this moment that when he stands and looks at a, a cripple, that he says, I have something for you and I'm going to give it to you. And he gives it to him with certainty. When you think of Peter's journey. Peter was originally a fisherman. Peter was a man that Jesus calls to follow him. Peter's the guy that experiences many things with Jesus over the years. Peter's the first to run across or to try and walk on the water or run to Jesus when Jesus is coming to him in the midst of the storm. He's through in the storm with Jesus when Jesus calms the storm. He's probably with Jesus when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Peter is one of the few that goes up to the mountain when Jesus is, the scripture says, transfigured. And he begins to shine in this way and he begins to speak with Moses and Elijah in that moment. Peter experienced a lot of things, but Peter's also the same guy who says that I'll never deny you, I'll give my life for you, I'll die for you. But actually Jesus is telling the truth when he said to Peter previously that actually no, you're going to deny me. And he does deny Jesus. This is Peter's journey. He denies Jesus, but Jesus restores him and he restores him to a place of leadership in the church. And so on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, who is it that stands up to preach? It's Peter. Somewhere along this journey, Peter gets something that he knows that he has and he's able to give to the man at the gate at the temple. You think about what he would mean to learn from Jesus, to walk with Jesus. To be sent out by him from time to time and he says, now go do this and you go try and do it and it didn't work and you come back and he debriefs you and says, okay, this, this didn't work. We tried to cast out a demon, one of the stories says, and we couldn't do it. And Jesus says, seriously, guys, and then he does it, right? 
Um, and, 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 and so that, that's, that's, that's the process that Jesus follows, teaching each of his disciples to be confident with what they have that he gives them. But what's interesting is, I began to wonder where Jesus himself learns this principle, where Jesus understands how succession works, how there can be something handed on to another person, how there can be a legacy given, a legacy that's tangible and substantive and real and lasts and endures. And I wonder whether Jesus, when he was looking at the scriptures, ever looked at the story of Elijah. I think he did. Jesus looks at the story of Elijah and he sees that Elijah passes something to Elisha and he wonders maybe this is something that's important to me as I'm trying to disciple and pass something to others also. And so that's the story of Elijah passing uh, uh, succession to Elisha is the origin of our last grace Marietta value this week, which is called passing the cloak. And if you're familiar with the story of Elijah, Elijah has had the contest on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. We all remember that story when he calls fire from heaven. Um, The next thing Elijah does is because he's in trouble with Jezebel, and you think of this, this is astonishing. The next thing he's doing, he's running from Jezebel because she's threatened to kill him, um, which is which is actually an amazing transition, right? From these, these these incredible things that he's doing, he's running from Jezebel. He runs to Mount Horeb. He runs to the cave. He hides in the cave. He wants to die. God won't let him die. He moves out and stands on the mountain. And Benton spoke about how when he's standing on the mountain. The strong wind comes, but God, the scripture says, is not in the wind. And then the earthquake happens, but the scripture says, God is not in the earthquake. And then the fire comes, and the scripture says, God is not in the fire. And then it says a still, small voice. And in the quietness, God speaks to Elijah. And would you turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you need a Bible, um, would you raise a hand? There are Bibles at the back. If there are any hands, please, those with Bibles, um, get them to those folks who are raising their hand. Everybody has a Bible with them. Everybody has a Bible, a physical one, or on their phone. Everybody in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. Everybody there? 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. So this is what happens when God speaks to Elijah after the wind, after the earthquake, after the fire, in the stillness. Verse 16, he tells him to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mahola, you should appoint as prophet in your place. And there's been a lot of sermons preached about the fact that Elijah had messed up and so he's being succeeded because he'd done a bad thing and he'd run from Jezebel. The text doesn't say that. You can speculate that, but I don't see it in the text. So I'm not sure that that's what's going on. All I know is that God is saying to Elijah, it's time to go find your successor. It's time to find your successor. And look what happens there, verse 19. So he departs from there, and he finds Elisha. And when he finds Elisha, what's Elisha doing? He's not sitting around waiting for the prophet to show up. He's out farming. He's plowing with, how many oxen does it say? Twelve. And Elijah passes by him, and he throws his mantle on him. He puts his cloak on him. So imagine this moment. You're out plowing with your oxen and your yoke, and suddenly there's a cloak on you. Like, where did that come from? Where did that come from? And he leaves the oxen and runs after Elijah and says, excuse me, um, what's that about? And maybe Elijah explains it to him. And look what he says in verse 20. Let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. Look at Elijah's response. 
go back again. You don't understand what I just did. Don't you get what just happened here? You have no idea of the significance of the moment here. Go back, what did I just do to you? It's got a question mark at the end of the sentence. So Elisha gets it, and he turns back, and he doesn't bother go kiss his mother and father. And what does he do with the oxen? Scripture says, slaughters them, boils them. <laughs> he burns a bridge because of the significance of the call. And there's a story in Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus is calling people to follow him. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And people are saying, I'll follow you, I'll follow you, I'll follow you. And he says, are you sure? So he says to one man, you follow me. And a guy says, I've got to go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. And so I wonder whether Jesus' understanding of the importance of the moment of succession and calling and responding to it in the right way is something, because Jesus is stepping this up. I want to just go, can I just go and kiss my wife goodbye? No. Don't you understand what happened here? Can I just go and close this down? No. Don't you understand the significance of this moment? Can I go and do this? No. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me, Elisha just says to Elisha. And so Elisha follows him. And so flip forward a little bit to 2 Kings. So just go forward about three, four pages to, to um, 2 Kings chapter 2. This is the continuation of the story. And it comes to pass, uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, that when the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven by whirlwind, which is an amazing thing. They know that this is going to happen, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah says to Elijah, stay here. And Elisha says, mm -mm. I'm coming with you. So they go down to Bethel. As the Lord lives, as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they go down to Bethel. And there's some others who are hanging around, sons of the prophets, who are trying to get in on this prophet thing. Um, and they say, do you know that the Lord's going to take Elijah away from us? And he says, shh. Verse 3. Elijah says to him, he's trying to put him off again, stay here. The Lord sent me on to Jericho. And he says again, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, I won't leave you. So they come to Jericho and the sons of the prophets, verse 5, say again, do you know that the Lord's going to take your master? And he says, shh, keep silent. I know. I know what I'm doing. I followed him to Bethel because I know what I'm doing. I followed him to Jericho because I know what I'm doing. Verse 6, stay here, please, Elijah says, because the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he says, look, if you not got this, I'm not going to stop following you. And the two of them went on. And the others, it says in verse 7, the other 50 stand from a distance. But Elisha is right up close to Elijah. Elijah, verse 8, takes his mantle, rolls it up, and strikes the water and divides the Jordan, and the two of them cross over. So he's crossed the Jordan, and the others are probably just watching and thinking, this is astonishing. Maybe we should have hung with him. Maybe we should have got a little bit closer to that. Maybe we should have been as relentless and as zealous as Elisha was. Maybe, why are we back here? Told you. This is me and John. John, I told you we should have gone closer, right? <laughs> We should have been, we should have been, we've missed it. We've missed the moment because we didn't know when the moment was going to come. And Elijah turns to Elisha and says, ask, what can I do for you before I'm taken? And Elisha says, he asks a big thing. Can I have your jacket? No. Your shoes? No. Your sunglasses? No. Give me your car? No. Your pin number? No. What you had, I want twice as much. What I walked with you and I saw you had, I want twice as much as that. I've tasted it. 
I've seen it. And I don't want the same amount. I don't want a third more. I want twice as much. Look how astonishing that question is. Look how bold his ask is. And Elijah doesn't say, whew, this one's a little pushy. That's not for you to ask. He says, okay, you've asked the hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me, verse 10, when I'm taken from you, it shall be for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And eventually what happens is they continue on and the chariot of fire appears with horses and separates the two of them. And Elijah's taken up by whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha, verse 12 says, saw it. 13, he takes up the mantle of Elijah that's fallen from him. And he went and stood back by the bank of the Jordan, verse 14. He strikes the water. And then he moves on in the power of the Elisha. The song's about... I don't know whether you thought it was a good or a bad song. These are the days of Elijah. But I find it interesting, and I did a count, how many mathematicians, sorry, let me look look straight at Graham, (laughs) people in here who like to do things and add up numbers, right? We're going to add up. Because was there a double portion? And if we count miracle upon miracle, let's see what we get. So let's add, right? Elijah proclaimed drought. How many is that? Everybody say one. Elijah is fed by ravens during the drought. Is that a miracle? You ever been fed by ravens? No? During a drought? Let's call it a half, because we don't know whether this was just God's mercy. So one and a half, right? Elijah, right? I don't know, maybe the ravens just came up to him, and it's like, oh, great, whatever that is in your mouth. Um, one and a half. Later, Elijah calls for rain again. So that's two and a half. Mir- miraculous provision for a widow. What's that? Three and a half. Resurrects the dead widow's child. The widow's dead child. Four and a half. Calls fire from heaven at Mount Carmel and again in 2 Kings 1. So that's twice. What's that? Six and a half. All right. Six and a half. <laughs> <laughs> You you, you might be overplaying the raven thing, right? (laughs) Anyway, Elisha, so, 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 sorry, Elijah parts the River Jordan, right? But because Elisha parts parts the River Jordan, we've got to cancel those things out, right? So, so Elisha parts the River Jordan. It says he heals a poison water supply. He works a miracle of provision for a widow. He ends a woman's barrenness through the word that he pronounces. He resurrects the dead widow's child. He makes poisonous food safe. He multiplies food. He heals a man of leprosy. He makes a metal axe head float. He opens his servant's eyes to see angels. There's a point when they're all surrounded by an army. And he says, have you not got this? And he opens his eyes and he's like, oh, there's angels all about us. So the odds are stacked for us rather than against us. I know what, I'm up to 10. He strikes the Syrian army with blindness. He later restores sight to the Syrian army. He leads Israel through a siege. And later after he's dead, his bones revive a dead man. Sound like a double portion? It does, doesn't it? So I thought it was interesting. He asked for a double portion. I thought, I've got to add it up, as you should, depending on how you're counting. Seven, six and a half, six and a half, 13, absolutely works out, right? But what other examples of succession, of legacy, of passing something on in Scripture are there that you can think of? Think of any other people that pass what they have to another person. Anybody. Successfully. Abraham, Moses, who does Moses pass leadership to? Joshua, 
So Joshua's with Moses the whole time, for years. So it's telling us that proximity is important. Joshua actually goes up Mount Sinai when Moses goes up the mountain for the first time. Not the second time when Moses goes up and has to have the tablets uh, refashioned and brings them down. What else does Joshua do? He's one of the 12 spies sent to go and see the promised land. And and he's not one of the 10 that comes back and says that there's big people there and we can't take it. And I know this is what you want for us, God, but it's impossible and they're big and they're really big. And uh, yeah, I really want it, but they're big, right? (laughs) He comes back and says, we can do this, right? Because God's with us. But unfortunately, that's not how it works out. And so Joshua is actually with Moses in the wilderness for a whole 40 years. And eventually, after God says that Moses won't go into the promised land, and he's on the mountain, and he sees the land, and God says, no, you're not going to lead them into that. Joshua's the one that has the whole book of the Bible written about him, about taking this land step by step. So that's another example of succession. And, and I'm, not, I'm not speaking today about raising kids, right? I'm not speaking today about the importance of passing the faith down. Uh, I'm lucky because Benton's going to do that next week. <laughs> um, and we had a conversation about what was I going to talk about this week and what could he talk about next week. Um, I'm speaking more about this concept of legacy, of succession, of passing something tangible and substantive, meaningful, important, good to someone else. And there's another example in 2 Timothy 3. Turn there, please. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because Paul, Paul writes two letters to a man called Timothy. And Paul had issues, it would seem, because he was so zealous for the gospel, so zealous to get the gospel to people that are dead. That there was a time when there's a young man called John Mark who doesn't live up to Paul's standards that Paul says, I'm not interested in him anymore. Which kind of reminds me of the Elijah-Elisha thing. It's like, I'm, we're on this journey together and, and if you're with me, you're with me. But if you're not with me and you're going to turn back, then I can't use you and you're no use to me. In fact, you're a hindrance to me because it's so important that I've got to go and do this thing that's ahead. Because instead of worrying about you, I've got to worry about the millions who don't know the gospel. And Barnabas later helps out John Mark. And later there's a point when Paul, it seems, has understood Mark a little differently. And he says, he's useful to me now. And he asks him to be brought to him. But in 2 Timothy 3.10, everybody there? Look at what it says. Look what Timothy has observed. You've carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, my faith my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions, my afflictions, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord has delivered me. Yes, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul has set an example for Timothy that isn't just about him saying things to him. But Timothy has have to observe his doctrine and understand Paul's doctrine and how he lives, his life, his home life, his relationships, how he manages purpose, how he expresses purpose. He's seen his faith demonstrated. He's seen that he's working patience out. He's seen how love and compassion and mercy and kindness work out. He's seen that he perseveres and he hasn't stepped back 
from the persecutions and afflictions that Paul is going through because Timothy understands if I want to be like Paul, I've got to go through all the things that Paul's going through. So these are all principles of succession, of passing a legacy, of handing something good to someone else. See, Jesus says to his disciples, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Look at that. Jesus is confident that his process is a good process. He's aware of the double portion of Elijah to Elisha, and he's telling his disciples, don't think it's just going to be like this. It's going to be better than this. Greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. And so it's right where we begin. Peter's confident of what he has because he's followed Jesus, and he's been close to Jesus. And he's not let Jesus go. There's a time when Jesus turns and says to them, everyone else has deserted. Are you going to desert too? And they're like, we got nowhere else to go. We've given up everything to follow you. We'll follow you to death even. And they meant it. Really, they did. Even though Peter has this, this hiccup, this moment of denying Jesus, he, at the end of the day, does really do what he says he was going to do. That's the tenacity that Elisha pursues Elijah with. Elsewhere, Jesus says to his disciples, it's to your advantage. It's better for you that I go away. So interesting. Because Jesus has made a plan for his departure. He said, you'll do these greater things because I go to the Father. You'll do this, these greater things. It's better for you that I go away because if I go, I'm going to send one who's better than me. And be- who's better than me. And everyone's like, no, 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 Jesus. You can't leave. He's like, no, but- I can, and I will. It's going to be better because I've made a plan for what happens next. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to do greater things than the things I've done, and it's in that faith that Peter is approaching this this man at the beautiful gate at the temple with a confidence that this deposit has been given to him. You think of Jesus' method, so he chooses prayerfully. You don't just look at someone and pick them. Jesus chooses prayerfully. He says before he picks his disciples, he goes away for the whole night and thinks about it and prays about it. He may have been watching these guys and observing them for years. He may have been by the sea watching these guys on the boat and speaking to the Lord, and the Lord saying him, him, not him. The Judas one. How, imagine, I wonder how that went. I wonder whether God told him from the beginning, him and you know, and I'm going to tell you now what's going to happen with him. Pick him nevertheless, because you know there has to be one that's going to betray you. Jesus chooses prayerfully. Next thing, he calls them to follow him. And he means it. Don't half follow me. Don't say, I'm going to follow you after I finish building my house. Don't say, I'm going to follow you after I finish the projects that I've got lined up. Don't say, I'm going to follow you after all these things that I've got to do with my life. Jesus says, just like Elijah to Elisha, do you not understand the call Do you not understand the importance and the power and the magnitude of this thing that I'm doing here when the cloak is placed on you, when the mantle is given to you? He calls them to follow him. He teaches them. He shows them things. He demonstrates to them. He sends them. Luke 9, he sends the 12 out. And he says, don't take much with you. And then they go do some stuff and they come back and then he sends more out and then they go do stuff and come back and they're excited about the fact that we see Satan falling like lightning from heaven and the spirits are subject to us in your name. They're shocked. 
because he's taught them so well, right? We've gone out and we're like, it works, right? Whatever it was, we were just hanging with him, but his deposit of whatever it is to us was the important thing. We just clung to him and he gave us everything we needed to do what we have to do. And there's a couple, and then, then after calling them back and debriefing, he just continues that cycle again and again and again and again until eventually past the times when he's saying, oh God, Father, how long do I have to put up with this exasperating generation? How many times do I got to tell them the same thing? How dull and slow are they? Do they not get, it's not about sitting on my left or right hand in glory. It's not about that. It's not about this. It's not about calling fire from heaven on their enemies. <sighs> right? It's about love and compassion and faith and kindness and mercy and grace and healing and resurrecting and declaring the gospel to every nation. There's a couple of graphics that I want to share with you that I hope are helpful. Um, And they're based on Jesus's approach to teaching his disciples. And the first one begins like this. I do something, you watch me. We start there. So it means you've got to know what you're doing. You can't call someone to follow you if you don't know what you're doing. But if you do, you do something. And all you're saying to a person in the early days is just watch how I do it. Watch how I do it. And after a little while, after you've done it and they've watched it for a little while, then it will move around a little further. And then I'm going to do it. And instead of me doing it all, I'm going to do it and you're going to help me. You're going to help me. But the responsibility for the task, the work is still mine. I'm doing it, and, um, and, and Brian is helping me, and John's helping me, right? And, and we're getting it done, but it's still my responsibility. I'm the one that's going to get in trouble if it doesn't get done, right? But there's a point when this switches again, right? And I say to them, now, you do it, and I help. And there's a passing of responsibility there. It's no longer my responsibility to do it. It's actually now yours. I'll help you, but I won't do it for you. And sometimes if you think about it, we can rush through this process way too quickly. Right? We call someone, and the first thing we say is, John, go do this, right? And I haven't shown John how to do this. And John hasn't walked with me for a little bit, and I've shown him how to do it, and the mistakes I make, and how difficult it is, and how to do it well, and how not to do it. And then maybe giving John a moment where, right, John, now can you help me in this little bit of the task, and now can you go do it? So often we leap straight through to that. Go do it. And actually, we don't even leap to you do, I help. It's just you do. You just go do it. There's no legacy going to happen that way. There's no succession going to happen that way. There's no passing of anything going to happen that way. We have to come through to the fourth thing where eventually when we've walked through all of this, now you can go do it. So this is not about having a sense of here's somebody who I've prayed or just who's just walked past me, whatever it is, and I want them to go do something and they'll go do it. And the next thing I'm going to do is criticize them when they mess up. Of course they're going to mess up. And they mess up because it's my fault. Jesus didn't call people to him and say, right now, Peter, go walk through the street, and the first guy you find, heal him. That would have been ridiculous. Years, three years of this. Watch how I I heal. We don't have enough provision today, guys. You feed them. And the disciples are like, uh. (laughs) So he says, And has that same prayer, Father, God, how long have I got to put up with this exasperating generation? And he takes the loaves and the fishes from the young guys and says, 
goodness, this is how you do it. And to prove how easy it is, there's so much left over. Do you get it now? Do you get it now? And after you've done it, and I'm no longer doing it, right? There may be a new task. And so we might start again. We might circle around again. You, I do something else. And you watch me do this. I do, you help. You do, responsibilities pass to you. I help. Then you do it. Then we do another task. But you see the arrow. And I'm just not saying that's the chariot. That's when the chariot comes. And then we've been around this circle enough. And there's nothing good or new coming of going around the circle. And you've trained someone up to the point that you can say, now, I'm off. You do it. And that's one example. There's another example, and this other one um, is, is, little, is a little simple, simpler. Tell, you tell someone something, just as Jesus told his disciples something. He taught people many things. I'm going to tell you what it is that you have to do before you do it. Next, I'm going to show you how to do it. Then you do it. Then we talk about it. Tell, show, do, review. Tell, show, do review. How do you cut the grass? Well, let me tell you that you need to, otherwise you can't live in the house anymore. <laughs> and it's dangerous. And you need steel toe cap boots or something. Don't cut your feet. Then let me show you how to cut the grass, right? Now you cut the grass. Let's have a conversation about why you cut the cable. <laughs> Where's the cat? <laughs> All those sort of things, right? Let's go through it again. Tell, show, do, review. I, I, I got this one, and I'm sure it's not original from, from a friend I know who, who was part of a... All the major banks had to do a presentation to Congress, and she prepared a team for one of them. And she said, the next time, my team's going to do it. Because we walked. I said, how did you do that? How are you so confident you'll never have to do it again? She said, I told them. I did it for them. Right? I showed them it, did it, now it's, we talked about it with them, and the next time they're going to do it, and if they fail, they're going to get fired. Right? <laughs> and, 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 so, and so these loops, of, these loops have, have, have you, here's what's important, you, we just can't keep going round and round and round and round in the same circles. There's some point when, just like the mother bird, you just get out and go do it. Stand on your own feet. Stand on your own feet. It's time for me to return to the Father. And it's time for you to take responsibility for this ministry that I've deposited safely in your hands and securely in your hands. And the Holy Spirit's coming, and it's better for you that I go. Three observations about the text in First and Second Kings. The first thing, then, is from First Kings 19, verse 16. So, basically, work for succession. Plan your successor. Don't set the ceiling and stop it at yourself. Set the ceiling, bring someone else up to it, find a new ceiling. Isn't that it? Isn't that what Jesus does? He brings his disciples up to doing exactly what he does, and then he's like, well, I'm off to something else. Work for succession. Elijah, go find your successor. It's time for you to move. Secondly, reciprocal zeal. What do I mean by that? I mean, be zealous. You pick someone to succeed, and they're not interested, find someone else. You pick someone to succeed, and they don't step up to the plate, and that's legitimate, find someone else. Because there might be someone else waiting to stand in that place. Elijah didn't go to anyone else after he lays the mantle on Elisha. He says, do you not get how important this is, this thing that I've just done? The cloak of the prophet is on you. This is serious. 
I mean it. And equally, the zeal is reciprocal because not only is Elijah zealous towards the one he's calling to follow in his footsteps and to succeed him and to continue his legacy, but Elisha is zealous in return because he's the one who, when they're saying, I'm going to Bethel, just wait here, Dan. No, right? I'm coming. No, 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 seriously, just stay here. If you bang on my door one more time in the middle of the night and demand me to get up and talk to you about something, right? It's, it's that kind of zeal. It's that kind of zeal. Well, you see someone who has something and you think, you know what? I've seen this person and I, they've got something and they clearly have got it because I've seen them walk in it and demonstrate it. I'm going to go and harass them <laughs> and hang around them and stalk them and not get arrested for stalking and not get court orders put against me for stalking, but I'm going to go right to this point to make it plain to them that I mean this. You're the greatest singer in the world, and I want to sing. I'm going to go find you, right? You're the greatest keyboard player. You're the greatest preacher. You're the greatest this. You're the greatest mathematician. Go find them. Pursue them. Don't take no for an answer. Reciprocal zeal. And the third thing is, third observation is be ready for the chariot. You think about that. Right at the top of 2 Kings chapter 2, Everyone knows the chariot is coming. How? We don't know. Elijah is about to be taken into heaven by whirlwind. Everybody knows. The prophets that are hanging with him all know. What does it mean to be ready for the chariot? It means you don't know when the time to step in is going to be. You don't know when God's moment of saying now is. So don't leave the zeal for another day. Or another year. Don't sit and think, I've got time to get to know these people, this person, these people I'm trying to get something from that I feel is a God thing. Be ready for the chariot because when it comes in the moment, make sure you're not like those 50 or however many others who are the wrong side, who are far away and we've got to suddenly run up to catch up. Oh no, the Jordan's passing, we've missed it. Don't be that. You just don't know when that moment's going to happen. So there's three questions I'm going to ask you one at a time before we head to communion. Just as reflection. First is this. Who passed a cloak to you? Who passed the cloak to you? Who passed a mantle to you? Who, whose legacy are you continuing? Who taught you good things positively? Your parents, siblings. Your teachers. I had a heartbreaking story of a man who used to attend here whose legacy from his father was gang culture. Because his father was in gangs and raised him to expect that that dog-eat-dog -dog experience in life is the way the world is. And his father would make him physically fight him. He would attack him and expect him to fight him back because he had to understand that that's how you survive. And his whole life has become one where he's trying to not pass that legacy on to his own kid. But it's hard. I hope you don't have legacies like that. I hope instead you have someone who passed a cloak to you Something positive. I can think of my own parents. 
and sisters, teachers, people you've worked with, people you've known. And then the second reflection question is this. What good things did they give you? Did they teach you about generosity? They teach you to put a little bit aside out of your earnings from cutting grass in the neighborhood to give to the Lord? Did you have a pot that you put money in and you'd pray as a family who to give those things away to once a month or whatever? Did they teach you it's better to give than to receive? Did they teach you your work ethic? Did they teach you how to pray? How to worship? Did you watch them praying? And you know how to pray because you saw them praying. Is the way you worship because of how you saw them worshiping? Did they teach you kindness, compassion, forgiveness? You see, if you grow up in households where everyone's judgmental and finger pointing and vindictive and unforgiving, it's easy to be the same way. It's not the legacy. That's not the succession we want to see. We don't want to see that in our kids. We don't want to see that in the people that we, we lead in work situations. We don't want to see that in people that, that we've, we're hoping will somehow stand in a place after we're, we've moved on. And then the third question then is, what cloak are you passing? What's the mantle that you plan to pass on? If the obituary says that this person, this man, this woman passed on this, what will be inserted in that box? What's the legacy? What's the succession? Sure, in your kids, but not just in your kids, in work colleagues, in other people who prayerfully after your night of prayer and asking God, God says, go pick him, go pick her, go pick those three or four or five or six or seven and call them to be with you. And if they don't want to come, then go pick someone else because this is serious. And then just like Paul and Timothy, let them see your life and your faith and your patience and your perseverance and your love and the difficulties that you struggle with and overcome. Let them see all those things at work. And you're passing a cloak to them as an act of love as an act of encouragement, of an act of proximity. I hope people have come to your mind. And I hope a sense of what you want to pass as legacy has come to your mind also. And I hope you're thankful for the good things that others have passed to you.